Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I was online a couple weeks ago and I clicked on an article about some cruise ships that were being sent to a scrapyard. And there were photographs there and the cruise ships were beautiful. They looked like they were brand new. You can't tell, but squeaky clean and indistinguishable from one that would have been carrying guests and had a track and swimming pools and Apparently, with COVID, they are now obsolete and worth more as scrap than uh, as you know as a cruise ship. And so it really blew my mind. And I started. I read that article, and I've I've got us a guest today to to learn more about this. And his name is Peter Canego. He is an ocean liner historian and journalist. And we're going to be talking all about these cruise ships, the history of them, kind of how they came to be, and how they're made how they're dismantled and scrapped, and everything in between. I'm really looking forward to it. This is something that I know very little about. I did go on a cruise ship once, and I really enjoyed it. It was it was a totally new experience for me. Those things are just massive. If you've, if you've never been on one, you almost can't believe just how massive they are. It's like a building on its side. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Without any further ado, Peter Canego. Peter Canego, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast here, and uh, welcome. Thank you, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. Will you, for my sake and the listeners, start with just kind of your background and how you maybe first got interested in cruise ships and how you got to where you are today as a, you know, a, some sort of an expert on and the history of them and where they are now in terms of uh, the, this dismantling and can you talk about how it is you got you got into this area? Sure. I, as a little kid, I was always interested in the Titanic, like every kid, you know, dinosaurs, Titanic, that type of thing. But I really started getting very, very hardcore into ships when I was about 12 or 13. I was assigned a paper in American history to discuss the Lusitania. And I thought it was some battleship. I had no idea. And then I started doing all the research and found, oh my God, another four stacker ocean liner sank by the bow, huge maritime disaster. It was opening whole new vistas for me. So I found out there were other four stacked liners. And then the Art Deco era came in with ships like the Queen Mary. And I just, the more I learned about ships, the more I thought, ocean liners were just an incredible subject matter. And I've always tended to be a little over the top with, with my interests. I, I'll get fascinated <laughs> with something and for a year or two, it'll all, it, that's the only thing I'll talk about. And then I'm on to something else. With ships, <laughs> that stuck since I was like 12 years old. So, you know, we're wow. dealing with like 40 years of, of ocean liner fascination. The more I read about them, the more I love them. And right around that time is when all these great liners, the ones that were still left, they were called blue water liners. They sailed to places like Australia, uh, South Africa, the West Coast of Africa, uh, South America, places that can, had warm weather as opposed to the Atlantic liners, which had all mm. pretty much disappeared by the late 1960s. And these ships were still around, but they were going really quickly because the fuel crisis and also the 747 jumbo jet had just come online and they could fly jets all the way to Australia now instead of having to stop two or three times. So right. that was like 
the end of it for these beautiful blue water liners. And they were going to places um, mainly in Taiwan, a, a scrapyard called Kaohsiung, the New Amsterdam, the Homeric, the Orsova, all these beautiful ships were being scrapped. And I was like, wait a minute, I just discovered these and they're leaving <laughs> our realm. They're, they can't do this. And so it just really drove me crazy. Um, hmm. So at that point in time, I had a Kodak pocket instamatic camera, but I told myself, I don't care. Whatever ship comes to Los Angeles, I'm going to visit and document it. And then when I was finally an adult and able to actually afford a better camera and to travel, uh, I started making trips. I did research and found out where in the Ukraine or China or some other really, really far off place that was exotic, some of these old ships were still around. They had just, you know, they were in their third and fourth careers and they were nearing the end of their lives. So I said, okay, I've got to go document these ships. So for about 10, 15 years, I was out there going to all these crazy places, sending faxes, if you remember that yeah. way of communicating to yeah. ship owners and begging them for permission and offering them my photos in exchange for access to these old ships. Huh. So come around the early 2000s, um, the ships were no longer just sitting around. The price of steel was going up in countries like India and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh were really looking for steel. So they were buying all these old ocean liners and they were sailing off to India mainly for the passenger ships, the ones that I liked, because uh, they have a market there right outside of the scrapyard where they sell all of the fittings um, and furniture, toilets, life rings, whatever. They had a market for it. So the passenger ships were going there. And I finally decided, you know, this is my chance not only to document this, but to actually go there and salvage some of the stuff. Um, I was in the music business. The industry was collapsing uh, mm. because of downloading. So I thought, well, okay, maybe this is my new thing. Mm -hmm. I know so much about these ships. I've done nothing with this knowledge. So maybe I should start buying some of these things, not only for my own use, but to sell to friends and people who collect such things. Mid-century modern was really popular in the design market. So mm -hmm. these ships were loaded with Scandinavian, Italian, British, all this stuff from the 50s and 60s that you just can't find in quantity anywhere. Mm. So I would go to India. I made my first trip. There were some 10 ships there, um, 10 beautiful old ocean liners, the old Carnival Mardi Gras, uh, the Stella Solaris, these, these classic ships that had been put out of service because of 2001. Uh, when 9-11 happened, the cruise industry was really badly affected. Nobody wanted to travel. So the cruise lines with all the old cool ships were going out of business. And the only option they had was to sell their ships for scrap, which is similar to what's happening now with COVID. Yeah. Um, a lot of the lines are just, they can't afford to keep the ships in layup. So off they go to the breakers. God, so, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, be, before you, before you um, keep going, let me just clarify a couple things. And I definitely want to talk about the, the salvage and the, um, I don't know, it's not salvage, but the collecting you're doing of some of these beautiful pieces. But back to the beginning, you said the, the Lusitania was a four-stack uh, ship. Obviously, the Titanic had the same. I'm learning all this as we go here, but that obviously refers to the huge chimneys that 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 are the exhaust, I guess, for the big coal furnaces. And am I correct that for a period of time there, these were, I, I can't believe I haven't thought of this, but obviously big 
jet airliners weren't happening. So if people wanted to travel across oceans and countries, this is how it was done. Is that more or less it? There was a beautiful book about ocean liners written right at the time I got interested in them. It was called The Only Way to Cross. And they were the only way to cross. These were not cruise ships. They were not right. there for escapist, fair weather, partying. They got people from A to B. If you did uh -huh. business in London and you lived in New York, you had to take an ocean liner to get to England. Yeah, because uh -huh. at that time, especially Lusitania, there were no flights at all. There, you know, The Wright brothers were, I think, just a few years before. It wasn't right. really until the 1920s. I think that people were actually able to take planes and they'd have to stop, you know, in Nova Scotia, Iceland, you know, <laughs> Ireland, you know, short jaunts to get across. Yeah, yeah. It was scary stuff because they were small planes. And I don't yeah, think they're probably really uncomfortable, especially oh. compared to a liner. Yeah. Yeah. Liners were at that at that point in time, liners were really the marvels of their era. They were engineering. Yeah, accomplishments that every nation was so proud of, like we would say, be about the space shuttle today. That's what okay. the oceans were. So yeah. they, were, they are the greatest architects. They had the greatest artists contributing their artwork to the ships. The designs were, were way ahead of what was going on in, on, on land um, in many cases. And so they were, they were marvels of their era and boom, in the sixties, when the airplane took over, gone like like the old movie stars when silent yeah. films you know died for talkies all those great movie stars that didn't have a really good voice mm -hmm. they were they were yesterday's news you know so wow. it's kind of like that but well that's amazing and and it's there's actually like several deaths happening in this discussion we'll talk of course about the actual ships breaking down but just that concept alone of a country's pride and joy and best of their workmanship being put into a ship. And that doesn't exist to that extent with, with ships, does it? Or am I wrong about that? Do modern cruise ships, are they anything more than just sort of a, a, a business calculation of how much they can invest or are there places where liners are still thought of that way? Exactly. No, there are no liners left. The Queen Mary two is, is a, ocean liner hybrid. She she can cruise in the winter months, but huh. they don't send the Queen Mary 2 across the Atlantic throughout the winter. Uh, Pre-COVID, we're talking, of course. Right. But nobody wants to cross the Atlantic in the winter. They don't, You don't need 60-foot waves and, you know, that's yeah. not a great time. But in the summer, the Queen Mary 2 is very popular. And instead huh. of going for speed, which is what they used to do with the Atlantic liners, the faster a ship, the more people wanted to take it because the crossing would be shorter and they would get to do their business and they wouldn't uh -huh. be stuck at sea as long. Nowadays, they they don't care about the speed so much. And with the Queen Mary 2, they actually extended the crossings a few extra days so that people could enjoy them more and they also wouldn't be burning up so much fuel for, for no particular reason. So wow. yeah, there are no liners. Now these are cruise ships, you know, when Royal Caribbean's building a 220,000 ton mega ship, uh, that's purely for cruising and they yeah. may relocate it from the Caribbean to Europe, you know, for the summer, but that's just a, what they call a positioning voyage and not a real yeah. And they're, they're calculating how many swimming pools can we fit, or maybe more, how many rooms can we fit and how many balconies can we fit 
more than there's no sense of beauty anymore. Some yeah. ships look better than others, but modern cruise ships, as everybody calls them, they're like giant, you know, floating condos. They, yeah. they, they squared off sterns and yeah. very, very short bows. And then immediately the superstructure comes up and it's a big square monstrosity. Yes. It looks like a huge Lego just kind of like floating. It, I, th- I was really struck by this. I watched your, your video, the sands of a Lang, and I think it was the, Eugenia, maybe I'm not sure, but the Italian one where the bow was very elegant, and the way you described it, and with those pictures from it being manufactured, and then of course even after it was repurposed and repainted, those that that shape of that bow, I, I was, I wouldn't maybe have noticed it if you didn't spell it out, but instantly I was like, that is not what today's cruise ships look like. It's just beautiful and elegant, and and for something, I guess it's not so old, but. Still, I mean, back then they were certainly concerned with the aesthetic of it, I guess. In, with the Italians, always, uh, not so much now, but at that point in time, the Italians would spend more money just to make their ship look pretty on the mm. outside. Those wings on the Eugenio, they, they curved back in a full circular shape so that the officer on the very aft of the wing overlooking, you know, to see if they're docking and undocking, was out of sight of the officer in the bridge with the telegraphs. So they would have to bring another one in just to communicate between the person on the wing and the person in the bridge. But they did that because they thought the ship looked so much better with that beautiful curve. And she did. She was stunning. But it was impractical. And now everybody's practical. They want to make money. They got to squeeze in extra cabins. They got to squeeze in all of those um, money-consuming venues like specialty restaurants and Mm -hmm. roller coaster rides and anything they can use to make money, they do. And that's at the expense of the aesthetics. And Mm -hmm. in the olden days, when they had true ocean liners, the aesthetics, there was always a compromise for, yeah, they've got to make money, but yeah, they want to make this ship look really, really cool so that yeah. when somebody's on the other ship crossing and they see us, they go, wow, that's a beautiful ship. I want to go on that one. Yeah. Were, were those ships in that day sort of private investment speculative businesses or were they kind of the, the governments themselves kind of supporting? I, I, it had to have cost a fortune, you know, to build one of those at that time, even today. But how is it that they could afford to, to devote so many resources to those? Well, they did have government subsidies, um, okay. like the SS United States, the greatest ocean liner built in the U.S., uh, built in 1952. She was subsidized by the government because she was also designed as a troop ship. Uh, should uh-huh. we have entered the Korean War and needed a big troop ship, she mm-hmm. was in within a couple of weeks could have been converted from a luxury liner into a fireproof very, very safe cruise ship where some of her compartments could be flooded and she wouldn't be in danger of sinking. She had a backup operating system so that Mm. if if one of the engines was out, they could use the other on the other side of the ship to control the the propellers. And she could go 35 knots, which is an outrageous speed, the equivalent of about 50, over 50 miles per hour. And that's, that's what they allowed us to know she was a government secret so you couldn't look at her hull when it was in dry dock it was forbidden no no photos were allowed um so hydrodynamic she still exists she's sitting in philadelphia she's 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 been pretty much hollowed out and and she's been 
rusting away, but she's still structurally sound. And there are people that are trying to save her and make her into something like the Queen Mary. Uh, okay. So yeah, the ships were subsidized by the governments uh, if they were, you know, on routes, say for Australia, uh, if the British government was was wanting to get people to emigrate to Australia, they would subsidize the actual sailing so that people could pay a very cheap fare to get from the UK to Australia cheaply. Um, so yes, there was a lot of government involvement, the subsidy, yeah. French line, uh, Italian line, these great transatlantic companies were operating their ships until the early 70s when finally the taxpayer said, you know, enough is enough. We're not going to subsidize this anymore. Airplanes mm -hmm. do the job, so we don't need to have these beautiful ships around anymore. Got it. Gone. Got it. So here's a really basic question, and I'm just thinking out loud, but those, I'm guessing all of those ships, let's just say from the Titanic to these ones we're talking about, the um, Eugenia, are powered by coal, and so there's a, those are huge steam engines. Or how, what, what is it that's moving those things up to 35 knots? Well, at that time, yes, originally Titanic was powered by coal, uh, but in the late teens, early 20s, they switched to oil. So they got rid of the coal burning ships. Oh, Very okay. few of those were left after the 1920s. Although there is still a coal burning uh, ferry that crosses the Great Lakes. She's called the Badger and she's a beautiful ship. And they have the people that own her actually own a coal mine and they do it in a, in a somewhat environmentally sound way. But the ship is so old and she's so classic, they want to keep her running. Uh, huh. but yeah, oil was the way and steamships had at that point in time better technology for speed so most of the liners were built with with steam engines but so uh, that, that means an oil steam engine you use oil to create the steam and is that what what oil as fuel means a bunker bunker c fuel which is what they use that was a standard fuel for oil burning oil burning ships okay. it's cheaper than diesel fuel but it burns a lot more and mm. it costs a lot more to operate the old steamships. And you had to have boilers and, and you know, a lot more maintenance in a steam engine than say a piston uh, diesel engine, which is what all the new ships are. So oh, interesting. Th those were more maintenance in one of those oil boiler ships than a, than in a, the oil ships, the steamships were more maintenance. Okay. And the the people that operated the steamships were dying off as yeah. ships were taking over. It got to the point where only like the Greeks who were buying all the older ships and, re, you know, keeping them in service and refurbishing them. You had to go find a good old Greek engineer that knew how <laughs> to operate these, these steam engines. Yeah. But all the cruise ships that operated on steam are all gone, except for the few that are left and in, in, in ports as floating hotels like the Queen Mary and the Rotterdam. Um, huh. That's that's all that's left. All the new ships are diesel powered. And now they're going to LNG. Uh, oh. They found a safe way to use LNG, which is far more environmentally friendly, but uh -huh. it's more challenging because you have to refrigerate it to get it to be liquid form, to use as fuel, and also it's highly explosive. So you have to take extra precautions with, with that. Wow, but that's what they're doing. That's the most cutting edge At this point, fuel yeah, source. The new Carnival ship and a, and a couple other ships that are in the Carnival Corporation, there are mm -hmm. other lines like Costa and Aida. They have these LNG ships, and that looks to be the, the latest trend and where are we going to go in the future as we try to make the planet more green. So. What, um, as a side note, but what is it about the Greeks that allow that enabled them to collect and work on the old ships? I guess they're they're 
they've always been a shipping and maritime culture. Is that really all there is to it? There's, there's so much shipping there that they, that's where the experts congregate. Yeah, yes. And also, uh, especially after the war, uh, the Greeks were buying for the Australian emigrant service and also for even cheapy um, Mediterranean cruises. They were buying old ocean liners that were considered no longer viable. Uh, there was this one company, Chandra's Lines, which actually started celebrity cruises before Royal Caribbean bought it. Um, wow. They they had this emigrant service to Australia and they were buying these old American ships because they were so well built and they were operating them all the way up into the 80s and 90s. Um, these you know ships that were up to forty and fifty years old with these old steam turbine engines. So the Greeks were the best at re, re, you know making these engines work again when when a lot of people were just like oh, I don't know how to fix that you know okay yeah. the the Greeks because they're, they're really good at that. You know? <laughs> I got to imagine to some extent every engine on every ship is totally different. In other words, there was no big mass production of cruise ships engine. So each ship was kind of fitted and built out in its own way. So even an expert would ha kind of have to walk in and say like, okay, that's probably the boiler. There, there's some amount of, I don't know, troubleshooting involved with these as opposed to any other, you know, auto mechanic, let's say. Yes. On the old liners, that is the case uh, because they would have so much space for the engine and then they would need to know, you know, how, how powerful do we need these engines? Is this a ship that's got to be a speed demon or is it just mm -hmm. got to get across? Okay. Um, so they would have more, more flexibility, but there were some ships like in the, in the military ships um, in U.S. Navy, they were pretty much standard engine rooms. You know, you use these parts over here, those parts over here. Oh, okay. And, and like the Victory ships and the Liberty ships, they were all the same engines because the ships were all pretty much identical. Oh, okay. And a lot of those engines, like if they had uh, troop transports, they would take two of the engines or four of the engines that were used in a Victory ship, which was much smaller, and apply those to uh, the new format and the spacing that they had on the on the bigger ship. But yeah, um, but with the one-off liners, yes, the engines were pretty much, you know, commissioned specifically for that ship. Of course, mm -hmm. using parts that are manufactured for every type of ship, but specifically tailored for that one ship. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about the artists that would put their work in these. And again, I'm thinking about the Eugenia and I can't, I'm sure you can tell us that artist, but it's sort of the same thing where I, it's just so hard to visualize um, in this day and age, I, there's not even, maybe I'm just not in tune, but you know, household name artists today that I don't even know who you would hire for if there was something like this, but what, what was that like then? Because you made it sound in the video, like these guys were huge and even the, the furniture designers and every part of the, every room was sort of very carefully, um, curated. And, and that, I thought that was, that surprised me for some reason. Yeah, on a ship like Eugenio, you had an architect, uh, Niccolo Costanzi, who was the guy who was in charge of that swan's neck bow and the curves on the bridge front and the way the funnels canted out in a certain way. I mean, all these subtle, beautiful elements of design, which we have now lost, yeah. I guess, forever. I hope not. Maybe one day people will really care again about the way these, these aesthetics used to work. But on the inside of the ship, you had these architects who um, uh, Nino Zancada, uh, Gio Ponti, these great Italian architects, they were phenomenal. And everything they did was about the aesthetics and the function and flow. Uh, but with the artworks, they commissioned, especially after the war in Italy, 
they were trying to make us forget about that little problem that we had with Mussolini and good point. Yeah. Good point. They were, they were repairing their image to some extent. Maybe you stepped on an Italian ship and it was like, you were stepping once again into Italy. It was a country of art, the country of music, the country of aesthetics and beauty. So they hired the up and coming artists, the ones that they felt were, were the future of Italy. Um, This one man, Emanuele Luzzatti, and this other artist, Enrico Paolucci, after the war, they were the new generation of artists. They And uh, Luzzati was Jewish, and he had to fl- flee Italy during the fascist regime, and he lived in Switzerland uh, until the war. So the government was wanting to make up for all of that, and Luzzati was one of the prime candidates. So when Zancada and Pulitzer and Ponti and these other great architects were designing ships, they called upon Luzzati, who was also a scenic designer, to do everything, uh, sculptures, um, ceramic arts, big giant panels, uh, wow. small little individual ceramics. These guys were so talented and they were so good in so many different media that they could fill ships with this art. And it was so beautiful and so appealing that people liked to sail on Italian ships for the ambience. The Italians weren't building the biggest, they weren't building the fastest, but they were building what many people were considering the most beautiful ships of their time, along with the French. I have to give the French that too, but the French were also building some of the biggest, like the SS France was for a while, the biggest ship in the world um, in France. So yeah, there um, there's a sense of aesthetics and a sense of beauty and dignity that these old ships had. So it's funny to me when, when somebody says, Oh yeah, you're that ship guy, you're Mr. Cruise. And I'm like, no, it's, it's really (laughs) not that. I love cruising. It's a great way to travel. It's a great (laughs) way to see the world, but I like the ships and I like the ones that had classic beauty to them, not just these massive, you know, they build eight or 10. Can you explain or put it in your words? Why is it that this in the mid century, the art and the aesthetic was so superior? It seems like than it is now. I mean, cars and furniture, I never thought of ships, but obviously ships. What is it? What is going on in, in that, that made things that way? You know, I, I don't know if there's just one factor here, but in World War II, a lot of the um, great architects fled. Uh, they came to America uh, to escape the war or persecution in Germany or other parts of Europe that were under you know Nazi control. Uh, so there was this incredible stew brewing of all this talent here in in Southern California, especially because the weather was so good and there was Mm. a market for it with interior design and and overall architecture. Um, So after the war, that's when these guys really got to start expressing themselves. And there was this new style of architecture, somewhat based on Art Deco, but taking the progress of the era, the nuclear bomb, outer space, and science um, getting into microscopic forms. Mm-hmm. So the style of architecture called Googie became very popular. And that's what you'll see in Las Vegas, in the old Las Vegas with the Sands Hotel and that really cool lettering and those strange oh. sort of obtuse shapes came yeah. from that architecture. So that was a way of sort of kickstarting things. And then people were appreciating what was going on in Scandinavia because they were so futuristic and so practical in their design. They yes. didn't design chairs with extra filigrees and stuff. They just made a chair 
that would be comfortable and cut out all the nonsense, just make it as sleek as possible. And there were people like Eero Saarinen who did the um, St. Louis Arch. Um, he was a great architect and he was designing furniture. So this movement started in the late 40s and really came to fruition in the 50s and early 60s. And of course, ocean liners, the new ones that were being built were obviously on top of the latest design trends and technology, and they were hiring these architects to fill the ships with their furniture and, and nice futuristic design. And I think it was a time before there was this mass uh, production uh, of things where things were still handmade and they were still, mm. you know, composed of elements like mahogany and tea, yeah. you know, beautiful natural elements that no longer were either available or inexpensive to use. And that's mm -hmm. when they switched to plastic and doing everything cheaply. And, uh, you know, I'd say probably by the mid seventies is when we lost that really great sense of style and by the time the 80s came around, they were recycling the old styles. The 80s was that Nagel and Vargas look that was sort of a take back to Art Deco, but a mm. cheap form with black lacquer instead of, you know, really cool <laughs> materials, you know. Yeah. Glass brick came back in the 80s and Duran Duran and, you know, all of that sort right. of our sensibility. But it wasn't original. It was capitalizing on what had gone on in the past as opposed to the originality of even the 70s. You know, you watch an old episode of Mannix or Columbo and, you know, everything's orange and avocado green, but it's unusual. It's unique and it, it makes yeah. a statement. Whereas, you know, by the 80s, things became generic and more of a nod to the past and not looking towards, you know, setting new trends. Yeah. Because I can't even describe. I don't even know yeah. what represents the 90s. I guess a lot of things. <laughs> turquoise you know but there, there yeah. is a special look to it and nowadays the ships they they function beautifully they're they're good looking you walk in you know but now mid-century seems to be the the driving ideal of what new ships look like they they go for that super modern scandinavian look but it's not the same as it was back in the 60s and 70s when you were really like you were on a set of 2001 or something walking into some of these ships beautiful lounges nowadays it's sort of like yeah yeah we're used to that and so it's yeah. not special and it's also not as well made um mm. in the beginning when i started my midship century thing and i was buying these these tulip chairs uh by eero saren and they were on this one french ship uh these are the chairs in star trek on the bridge in star trek you know yeah. so people call them star trek chairs yeah. well back in the early 2000s one of those chairs easily would sell for $2,500 just to have an original Eero Saarinen. But then by 2010, Ikea was knocking them off. So you could buy a brand new one for 150 bucks. It wasn't the real thing, but it yeah. looked like it. So people were happy with that. And then all of a sudden the market dropped out of some of these original things that, that were once so expensive. Um, wow. I think that partially explains it, but I think, you know, there's just a lot of factors involved. In, yeah. In it's, it's tough to really get my arms around. Cause on the one hand, it's not, it takes more time and money to make things beautiful and with nice material and it does today. And it also did then. And it's not like those people were so much wealthier that they had extra time to make it. And yet they did. So it's, it's just like, it seems like a contradiction. Like these people who, you know, they were, their, their lives were um, also, you know, they were, paying the bills and we, we i know people criticize a consumer culture correctly but people have always had to consume to live and so but for some reason the priority like has just flipped and 
back then, I don't like you said, the cars, the furniture, the the buildings, all of it is just forward looking, and it just seems like there was more time taken to, into the quality and aesthetic as opposed to today. I, I I don't know what it is. I absolutely well, people a bank would hire a great architect to design yeah. a bank that would make people want to go into it or think yes. oh, that's, that's a beautiful building. Bank of America. Wow. What a successful company that is. They built that beautiful building right. down on Wilshire Boulevard. You know, that was then. And then when we started yeah. getting strip malls and everything on the cheap, then people were just less concerned with noticing their environment. Yeah. Yeah. They just sort of acquiesced and said, okay, uh, I'm okay with the strip mall, you know, as long as they've got the, you know, Starbucks and, and, mm-hmm shops that I want to go to. I don't really care what it looks like. I just want it to function. And yeah. that, that's when I think, you know, that, that was part of that, that, that turn. And also the, the, the materials, as far as ships are concerned in the fifties and even up into the sixties, they had this beautiful woodwork on ships. It was, mm-hmm. it was veneers, but it, it was put on top of uh, plywood and it would be veneers from Africa if the ship sailed to Africa, or veneers from oh, Canada, beautiful, beautiful maple, sycamore. Um, they had that, but fire regulations changed. So you could no oh. longer have wood on ships. So Got they it. would make imitation wood. And that was really mm-hmm. ugly in the 70s. You know, fake wood yeah. in the 70s was horrible. They got better at it. Now you go on a ship like the QM2, which has fake wood. Uh, just a painted version, basically, very you know, printed on a a computer, basically, of mm-hmm. what wood grain looks like. You're in the elevator in the QM2, and you go, "Gosh, that's beautiful burled maple," but it's not. It's a really <laughs> yeah. high resolution photograph of burled maple that's huh. you know, basically stenciled onto the ply because it's fireproof. And yeah. fireproof fire is a big. That's the worst thing that can happen at sea. You think, oh. Why? Why would you worry about fire when you're on a ship? You're surrounded by water. But basically, no, a fire is horrible and people die a terrible yeah. death because they're stuck on a ship that's, you know, a raging. Yeah. Well, this morning I saw a news article, a, a ship off the coast of Africa. I don't know if you saw this, but 140 people, I think 140 people died. This just happened. It was like a, uh, not a transport. I can't remember. Some type of ferry. And and this ferry, just happened. Those little African ferries probably. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, I was reading it. I knew we would be speaking and I was thinking about ships and I, and it occurred to me like, are, are people drowning or what's going on? And then it, the article said like, no, a fire broke out and yeah, you're, you're out, you're all by, there's no, there's nowhere to get away from it, I guess, when you're on yeah. a ship, right? You can't get off the ship, but like the lifeboats are disabled, you're, that's it. you're, you're doomed, you know? So, yeah. they, but the ships are, you know, they have fire safety compartments on the newer, on, mm-hmm. on all ships, but probably, I, I don't know this this latest news incident, it might be some old, you know, poorly maintained ferry, yeah, overcrowded, and it caught on fire, and that that happens a lot in in a lot yeah. of countries where they don't have a lot of safety laws. But again, I'm sort of yeah. out of turn on that one. Yeah. Well, the last point on this topic, and then we'll move on. But I I was thinking about just homes, even, and in terms of valuing beauty and aesthetic, and how. I was in real estate for several years and an appraisal on real estate is almost entirely based on the size. They're not allowed to take into account how it looks. And I, I ran into a few situations where sure a house may have been smaller, but it was the, the, the intangible, the beauty, like the, just the aesthetic was, was made it so much more valuable than maybe like a built in 2001 tract style home that was bigger. 
but the appraisal and I, I argued with them about this, but they're like, sorry, it's not, it's only worth X. And, and they are incapable of attributing value for some of those, um, intangible, they're not intangible. They are tangible, but so I, maybe they're just, uh, I don't know, you know, the things that can't be measured, you know, the, the, the beauty, I guess it's harder to measure beauty. So they, they don't, they have to put them all, you know, they have to use the same standard, I guess, for every single house. So it's about where is it located Yeah, is it in a fire zone is, does it have a view? How big is it? You know, and all the things like what's inside or, you know, there might be a Creek running by or something that makes it really more appealing. Yeah. I guess they can't, consider that stuff because that's easily changeable, you know, and what I think is beautiful and what you think is beautiful. The guy next door probably thinks, yeah, you know, get something more modern, you know, what, who wants that? (laughs) Yeah. But there are places like with these ships, when you put the, some of these old liners against a modern one and anybody can look at those and just, you know, you don't have to be a, an expert to identify that. So let's talk about, this might be the saddest part of our conversation. And it's just so hard for me to, to, to still grasp, but the, there comes a point where the highest value of these old liners is scrap and it, there's, there's really no other options, huh? No, no way to turn them into hotels or hospitals and nothing else. Well, a really great way to lose money, uh, just ask the operators of the Queen Mary is to <laughs> yeah. invest in an old ocean liner becoming a floating hotel uh, yeah. or museum. Uh, the problem is uh, you think, okay, it's made of steel. It's invincible, right? But mm. unfortunately, no. Steel rusts. And mm-hmm. over a long period of time, if a ship is in, say, salt water, Queen Mary, the poor thing, she hasn't been dry docked since 1967. They coated mm-hmm. her with special paint and they they go down and check and they make sure everything's okay but it would be so nice if they could just get her into a proper dry dock but a that would be a fortune and b there is no dry dock anymore in long beach Mm. when they brought it to long beach they had the naval shipyard and they used that well they filled that in so the nearest dry dock would be in san diego and the ship has been compromised they cut out so much of the infrastructure that her hull is not strong enough to support the ship being towed out to sea. So they'd have to rebuild her infrastructure. It gets very, very complicated. Mm. Aside from that, you've got plumbing. Plumbing goes bad. And that these systems uh, on most cruise ships, especially now, an entire deck is operating on the same system. So if one pipe gets clogged, that screws the next you know 10 yeah. cabins down from that one cabin. So that yeah. would be awful. They have to tear out paneling and repa- repair you know, old plumbing and wiring. Uh, wiring gets old as well. And again, you have to go back into the infrastructure of the ship in order to make those repairs. That's excluding engine rooms that need to be upgraded or, you know, modified old engines that they're running constantly. They need new parts, new labor. So it becomes very, very expensive. So you look at the safety issues. Like you said, if, if, if a old ship is more likely to burn, that's it doesn't work these days, and you know, thankfully. <laughs> well, the uh, in 2010 was was the last great uh, exodus of ships that were still functioning properly, and they were still safe. But they had new safety of life at sea laws that prevented any woodwork from being involved in a in a ship, even in the construction behind the scenes. You know, to build the framework for the stairs, and 
that all had to go. So they were perfectly good ships going to the scrapyard. They were glistening, you know, their paint was shining, their windows were clean, they were filled, you know, looking beautiful, but they were no longer legally able to be used on overnight service. So off to the scrappers they went. And then, of course, I was following those ships. That was the last batch of great ships that that went at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a number of factors. And unfortunately, and this is my big thing, is why aren't people more interested in these ships? Because unlike a car, a car is small. Um, it's beautiful, but it didn't go across the ocean, you know. <laughs> It didn't yeah. carry 2,000 people. It um, you know, wasn't the size of a skyscraper and yeah. designed specifically for that purpose. And then mm-hmm. the interiors, the, you know, the beautiful artworks and, the, and the, the flourish of the design on, say, a classic liner like the Queen Mary. It's remarkable when people actually experience it you know, and see it in person. Then they yeah. start to get it. But the world at large just doesn't care about ships unless it's taking them on a holiday and they've yeah. got 18 specialty restaurants and they've got balconies yeah. and they've got a big spa and yeah. a, you know, roller Casino. tube, <laughs> a rock climbing wall. They're yeah. not interested in all that other stuff. And I hope huh. that changes. I hope people go back and find ships interesting because they really were, they were, they carried, you know, in the fifties and sixties and the, and the last, what they call the last of the golden age, they were carrying all the movie stars and Eisenhower yeah. and Truman and, Kennedy and, you know, all the politicians and the leaders of the world were, were crossing on ships. They were dining in the restaurant and people were, you know, mm-hmm. in awe of what was going on around them. They had great mm. bands playing and, you know, they weren't all about um, big Broadway style shows, but they were elegant and people got dressed up and they looked their best and they were proud to be on, say, the SS United States or one of the queens. Yeah. As France, because they were they were symbols of prestige and, and accomplishment, and they're just not that anymore. People look down on cruise ships because they think they're they're tacky or they're bourgeois or whatever. And yeah, I disagree with that too. They're they're an incredible vacation, and they offer so much. You know, for yeah price paid you're getting fed your your hotel is moving from point a to point b you're not unpacking and repacking and if you're lucky you'll be able to spend some time at sea which is to me the greatest way to calm and relax yourself is sitting on a balcony or a promenade yeah. staring out at the ocean and looking at some beautiful harbor as you're entering or going through the yeah. now you know yeah it's kind of like going let's say going to the beach for the first time and it's it's really amazing and impressive and you feel the same thing everyone else ca- felt when they came to the beach the first time and I went on a couple cruise cruises and they weren't nothing special but I really felt connected with ancestors who made livings and livelihood and explore it, I don't know when you're on a big boat at sea like it was really fun just being on that carnival boat and thinking like I'm on a huge ship and this is cool and you go you know you can everything about it was just cool so I, I'm definitely a fan and and it just kind of um and we'll put some of these pictures up um, if you guys are listening to this only I definitely recommend you watch the video because we'll put some shots up, but maybe you can talk about what it's like for these ships at the end of the road. And I know you were in Alang and maybe some other spots, but what's that like? Cause it, it looks like it's just a bunch of guys going nuts with a cutting torch, but the thought process of dismantling one of these ships is almost more mind boggling than assembling it. Because when you're assembling it, you probably have cranes and 
guys with whistles and you know lookouts but on the beach they just beach it and start cutting that it just looks unbelievably dangerous and hazardous and it just looks terrible so can you tell us about that yeah well it's an incredible process it's it's horrifying to us uh, as westerners because of the the safety standards and the pollution uh, situation is is very unfortunate ships tend to be very toxic things especially ships that were built uh, back in the days when they were using asbestos insulation mm-hmm. uh, there's PCBs in the paintwork uh, there were all sorts of toxins in the fuel, the oil, um, a lot of stuff on ships is just not clean and, and it needs to be remediated in a proper, proper environment, which is extremely expensive. We have uh, scrapyards in, in America, in Brownsville, Texas, where we pay the scrappers to do the demolition of the old U.S. warships and troop ships and, and ships that are in the merchant navy that are laid up in places uh, around the U.S. when they're no longer viable. But with these yards in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and even in Turkey, they're in third world or second world countries where they really need the steel. They have cheap labor. They don't have great environmental laws. Uh, and in India, where I go, Alang, they have a 30-foot tidal variance. A ship in the 80s accidentally got beached there when the tide went down. It got stuck on the beach and they couldn't get it off the beach, so they scrapped it there. And then, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This... This is a new thing. We could do this. You know, so they started buying ships and intentionally beaching them at very high tide. Tide goes down. The workers go aboard. They strip the ship of everything that's on board and they start cutting. And the more they cut, the lighter the ship gets. And then they start dragging the ship up to shore and gradually the ship disappears. They cut these big giant chunks, drag those ashore and cut those down more and more and more until they're about six foot long, what they call um, plates. And they take those plates, load them up on trucks and take them off to the steel plants where they're melted down into rebar for construction. Huge, huge industry in India, especially uh, because India's economy has been burgeoning and they're building new, they're building roads, they're building buildings, they're, you know, have an infrastructure now where they need the steel. So that's, cheap way for the Indians. And they have the labor, even yes. though it's dangerous, almost all industry in India is dangerous, you know, clothes, yes. manufacturing, gar- you know, they just don't have the type of safety laws that we do, although they are improving significantly, mm-hmm. especially even from when the time I started going to India for the first time back in the early 2000s. Um, they're, they're, they're wearing hard hats now, they're wearing boots, uh, they're wearing goggles. They're covering themselves up. And mm. asbestos now can be remediated in uh, giant pits where they actually burn it at a super, super high temperature. And asbestos itself can burn just like anything else. Uh, and oh. then they bury it safely, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> so it's a lot better than it was. It's still yeah. not perfect, which is why ships are now going to this place in Turkey called Aliyah, because the EU has sanctioned them. They said they're okay. Certain yards there are taking care of the toxins in a way that's more acceptable. So Carnival and Royal Caribbean, when they sold this latest batch of ships, they sold them to Aliyah instead of Alang, because at Mm. least there, Carnival and Royal Caribbean won't later be blamed for selling Uh their ships and polluting. So they took a lot less money. So they've done a semi-noble thing by scrapping the ships there. 
and I'm I'm sure that Turkey and the Eastern European countries need rebar and steel. Yeah. Also, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's, the steel is going into the commodity market for steel and will be put to its its highest and best use. Definitely. Wow. So yeah. I, I take it your during your first trips to Alang, you saw guys doing this without hard hats and without proper boots and a little bit, yeah. And it was very hard for me. I am at heart an environmentalist. You know, yeah. I've been a Greenpeace kid since. 1969 when I learned about what Earth Day was and you know I you know that it's in my blood I I, I sure. care about the environment I'm from Southern California you know I, I yeah I throw trash out my car window and stuff like that that you know you'd see that in places like India and go why why are they doing this? they're just oh. not educated they don't know any better their priorities yeah. are we need to eat we need yeah. you know to sleep you know in a shelter. Um, yeah. living in monsoonal conditions or 120 mm-hmm. degrees during the summer, they're not worried about, okay, yeah. what's the world going to be like in 40 years? Their life expectancy is yeah. much less. You know, they're worried about, okay, if I go to a Lang and I work on one of those ships and I cut it down, it's dangerous, but so is work in my hometown. There is no work in my hometown. I'll make yeah. $2 a day in a Lang. I can send $1 to my family in, you know, in whatever province in India they live yeah. They will be supported by my work and I will live an okay life. I'll get fed and I'll be able to live in a shelter in a lang. It's not, you know, the Hilton hotel by any means, but it's better than the other options they have. So yeah. for the Indians, they resent us going there and saying, that's not cool. You guys can't be polluting the beach and you got yeah. safety standards because we have a different standard of life. So yeah. we impose that on this third world country where people are struggling in general. They've got a billion yeah. people living in India. We have a third that in twice as much space or more than twice as much space. So yeah. we have a completely different lifestyle. So yeah. I understand their perspective and ours. And that's made my work there much more difficult. A, hmm. I go there and I see these unbelievable scenes on the beach. And my friend Kaushal is like, you can't photograph that because... Hmm. You know, that doesn't make us look good. I can't get him into trouble. He's sneaking me in there. The Indian government doesn't want me there. I'd be thrown out. But if he were to be caught, they would, you know, make life very difficult for him. He lives there. So I abide by his rules. I don't shoot things that he says I can't shoot. The police are on the beach most of the time looking for people like me, Westerners, because Greenpeace has gone there and they've really embarrassed the Indian government. All the power to them. uh, because created the changes that have been happening. But my job is a historian. I go there to document and to preserve this piece of history. So I make a deal with, with Kaushal that I don't, you know, expose a lot of things. I don't see them so much anymore, though. My last couple of trips have, uh, have been very encouraging. I've actually had workers on the ships tap me and say, take my picture, you know, because mm. I'm wearing the right gear. You know, if you're going to yeah. photograph this, oh, yeah. make sure you get the word out that we're doing yeah. it the right way. And yeah. there are some scrapyards are better than others. Um, some in India really abide by the rules and they take good care. And a lot of the ship owners um, are very careful. They'll go scout out who's the best person we can sell our ship to when it goes to make sure that they won't be polluting and, and doing all the horrible things. That do you have do. any idea how that works? Do the different scrapyards like bid on a given ship in its entirety and just sort of guess what they're going to get out of it? Or how, how, well, how, how does that work? Okay. It starts when the ship is put up for sale, 
ship brokers come in, just like a real estate broker. A ship broker will, will manage the sale of the ship. So they'll make announcements. They'll advertise to the scrappers or to any other cruise lines that, hey, I've got this 7,000 ton, 300 passenger ship built in 1957 available. It's in Piraeus, Greece. Um, you can come and inspect it. Uh, so the shipbreakers will send, send their agents over to inspect the ships. They're buying the ships based on uh, lightweight tonnage, which is what the ship weighs in steel when it's empty. Uh, so that's how they make their deals for the actual purchase of the ship. How, how do they know that number? Is that sort of attached to the ship since yeah, it yeah. was manufactured? Lloyd's register of shipping. There's dead oh. weight tonnage. There's lightweight tonnage, gross tonnage, which oh, okay. is space. Um, th- all of that info is available. And then mm-hmm. they can go and inspect it. And they can actually see what type of steel is it high quality steel. Americans mm-hmm. built the best steel, you know, have the best steel in their ships. So old American ships might command a slightly higher price right. than say, a British ship built in the 50s when steel was short and they were using all sorts of minerals that would make more steel, but it wasn't, it was more brittle and not as good a quality. Right. So, yeah, you know, they, they look at all of those elements, but the main driving factor with scrap is the metal, the steel. When they mm. get it over to India, how much are they going to be able to sell that for on the current market? And with Alang, they have this extra market for people like me or, or somebody who owns a restaurant in Bombay, they'll fly up to Bhavnagar, which is the town near Lang, and they go to the shops and they buy the furniture that they need for their restaurant and take it back. Um, so they figured that out and they made a good use of this because before they were just burning it or, you know, cracking, oh. You know. oh my God, that must have broke your heart when oh. you learned that. <laughs> even, even after I started going there, there was this yeah. beautiful art panel by Paolucci, uh, probably, you know, I was buying it because it was historic and beautiful. But it could sell at Christie's for maybe $30,000, right? Wow. Four pieces in the panel. And I told Kaushal, I said, please go get that panel. Let's buy it. And so he's like, yeah, but the holidays are coming up. So I go after the holidays. Well, when he goes after the holidays, there's three pieces of the panel. I'm like, what happened? Oh, "Oh, yeah, they liked the way that one color was on the panel. So they made a table out of it. Like, oh my gosh, four pieces. You need all four. You can't have a missing gap in the middle of the art panel, you know. So he didn't understand that. He thought he was getting me a better deal because it was less expensive with three. So (laughs) learn from these things, right? You know, there's always a learning process. The first container I got. Uh, it wasn't Kalshal, it was another guy. And he'd never done this before, but the shipbreaker couldn't be bothered dealing with me. So he hired his nephew's or his niece's husband, you know. So the guy goes there, and, you know, so he's he's getting me these beautiful glass light fixtures, right? Made of etched glass, you know, 1951 British, the Brits did beautiful glass work. And, you know, so he, he wraps them in a blanket and throws them in a container. Well, this container is going across the ocean, you know, no padding, no crating nothing you know so i opened the container the first thing there is a dead rat that crawled in and died <laughs> first thing I say, oh my god this is an omen and later my friend kind of told me, you know a rat's a good omen in india they really respect oh. that so it might be bad for you americans but we consider it a good omen like they when you see a funeral that's a good omen right here we think it's a terrible thing interesting so anyway, um I, I i pull this blanket and it's clinking glass right well i open mm. it up and here are these beautiful light fixtures. The glass is completely shattered because he didn't bother to pack it. You know, it's just, 
it's a learning process. Yeah. So by the time the third container came around, they learned how to pack and, you know, clean things properly. And so it wasn't as much of a, you know, a, a disaster yeah. that arrived on the other end. Um, wow. That is just amazing. So maybe talk through that a little bit. So you said it happens in the first step where they, and that would make sense, carry the furniture out. And I guess at that point, they got to lower it down from the top of the ship down into the another yeah. boat or something. And then they, they... The lifeboats, they use the lifeboats uh, as tenders. You know, I have some pictures from in my first video of a lot of furniture I bought from this old British liner, an old Cunarder that used to sail with the Queen Mary. Um, she had all this beautiful wooden furniture. And so I bought a bunch of it and I have pictures of these lifeboats just filled with chairs that came, you know, from the ship and they take them ashore. And if they're in decent enough condition, they will, um, you know, sell them on the marketplace. But if they've got torn upholstery, they don't know any better. They think it's junk. So they break them down and use them as firewood. I literally had Kaushal. He's calling me on his cell phone saying, I found a truck and it's full of those dining room chairs you wanted. And they're going to the the firewood place, you know, and I'm like, get me 10 right now. (laughs) So he's trying to honk at the truck and he stopped him and he did get me the chairs. They look terrible when they arrive, but they're beautifully made, you know, solid sycamore or mahogany or maple, you know, all this really great old style woodwork. So I took the chairs to a restorer and he's like, where did you get these? These are so yeah. beautiful. And I was like, thank you for understanding. You know, yeah. he stripped them down and varnished them and there are dining room chairs. They look stunning. I wow. replicated the original materials, the piping that was on the fabric. So they look just like they did when they were new and beautifully restored after sitting for 30 years on a ship and, you know, getting eaten by rats and whatever they're, they all of this stuff, the original stuff that was made back then, pretty much can be restored as long as the components are intact. Wow. So so tell us then about Midship Century and how this works, because what you just described, um, I'm, I'm sure your house is full of it, but you're you're bringing these things across back to the U.S. and, and selling them. And maybe tell us about how that works and what that's like and what's available. Well, I mentioned I'm obsessive. So <laughs> in this one ship, uh, the Oriole, she was a miniature Queen Mary, uh, very small ship, used to sail to West Africa. And I, I, I got on board the ship in Greece before they sold it for scrap. And I couldn't believe the gorgeous woodwork and those lighting fixtures that ended up getting smashed, you know, with the etched glass. Um, so I ordered a 20-foot container and filled it with furniture from that ship. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get rid of all the furniture in my house and I'm going to replace it with this ship stuff. I'm going to restore it and it's going to look good. And all my friends who are not ship enthusiasts, but they have an eye, they can tell what good design is and what high quality is. When yeah. they first saw the stuff, they thought, you're you're insane. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. I hope you get some <laughs> help because <laughs> I fixed it up. They changed their mind. They're all <laughs> Do you have any more of those chairs? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. New business. Music business is crashing. I can start a new business. So instead of getting five chairs or 10 chairs from my house, I'm getting 50. They're yeah. never available anywhere else again. They were especially yeah. made for this particular ship or that particular ship, made by Casina of Italy, the furniture manufacturer. It's still in service today. You buy a chair from Casina, it's 500 to 1,000 bucks for a cheap new chair. These are the original chairs made out of mahogany and designed by Nino Zancata, you know, so they look terrible because they've got this really horrible upholstery on them and, you know, the work is scratched and stained. All of that can be fixed and you make these chairs look like they did originally. All of a sudden I'm selling chairs to people who are reselling them. I'll sell them for, you know, three, four hundred dollars 
And then all of a sudden they're being auctioned off $40,000 for a pair of chairs, you know, from a ship that I wow. rescued them from. Uh, they're, you know, going to movie stars homes. And yeah. you know, it's like, my God, they've gone from the beach in India to uh, amazing his name. But there's this one big movie star who was in a, a franchise about uh, pirates. Oh, uh, yeah. Johnny yeah, Depp. He's got a big house in um, the Caribbean that he bought after this franchise. And so this one huge art panel I bought is now in his Caribbean house. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and I can't say who who it is, but he's fond of mid-century and he worked closely with this dealer that I was selling things to. So so he 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 swooped in and bought this beautiful art panel at a great price uh, because mm-hmm. I was able to get it at a really good price and now it's in mm-hmm. his home. So yeah, this this stuff was one of a kind. And by the mid-70s, the one-of-a-kind thing sort of went away. Um, ship yeah. dying, uh, Love Boat brought back cruising in the late 70s. And by the 80s, they were doing, you know, uh, they were buying artwork out of catalogs and furniture from catalogs and yeah. making them specifically for this or that ship. They were no longer as special as they were. So you don't see me flocking now to Turkey to buy uh, some of the stuff that's on those great ships that are being scrapped because I really, th- that's not my market. That's not my yeah. idea. I love those ships. I've been on all of them at one point or another, and I'm sorry to see them scrapped, but I'm, I don't need a, you know, chair that was in the bar and the carnival fantasy. <laughs> yeah. It's not the same thing as a mahogany yeah. chair from a British ocean liner of the 1950s or an Italian chair from the 1960s. Yeah. Fascinating. And how cool. And so maybe to wrap up, tell us, I know that there, and the reason I came across your name was an article on CNN about a big, not a fleet, but a big collection of ships that just landed at a Lang or somewhere. And I think one of those ships is the one I, I was on actually. And I, I'm only judging that by my memory of like the pool and the track, but maybe they're all interchangeable. I don't know. But in any case, it's just shocking. These things look like they could just turn around and go right back out to sea for 20 years. And so tell us a little bit about what's happened to the whole industry and what, what it's like for these ships and in general, what this, uh, this whole process is like today. What COVID did was it took every ship that was really kind of hanging in there, you know, by 30 years, ships are getting to the point where most of them, their use by life is expired. And in the early nineties and the late eighties, nobody would have imagined that these ships were still going to be around 30 years from now. Some of the old liners that were built beautifully, very thick hulls. Okay, some of those, yeah, because the quality was there. These Mm -hmm. ships were built in shipyards with, you know, eight at a time as far as the Carnival Fantasy class is concerned. There were eight of them, identical structurally and engine-wise. Each one had individual decor inside that was very unusual. Not necessarily always tasteful, but very fun and very brassy. You felt like you were walking into an amusement park when you stepped in the atrium, you know, party type furniture and, and, and stuff. So these ships are all there. By the way, what was the one that you were on? Uh, I think it was called the Magic. Could that be? The Carnival Magic? She's yeah. a newer one. Uh, so oh, no, okay. That's not Magic then. Imagine. I can't remember. I, I saw the name in the article and it kind of jumped off the page like, that's the one I was on, but now I can't remember what it was. Did you go out of California or? Yeah, it was the the um, uh, California cruise down to Puerto Vallarta and Mazatlan, in, and oh. I did it in probably 2006. So Okay, so you might have been on um, Ecstasy or, or um, Elation might have been the ship that you were on. Carnival was yeah. doing those ships. Yeah. 
or it could have been the imagination or the inspiration. And those are the two. Yeah, I think I think it might have been inspiration. I, I, think, I think that was it. Sailing out of Long Beach last year, a very old ship by today's standards. Not not a lot of balconies. Actually, only a handful of balconies on that ship compared to the new ships. Um, and yeah, not with all the latest facilities, but the ships were clean. They were popular. And Carnival, it's always about the experience more right. than the hardware. The food is incredible on Carnival for the yeah. paying, and yeah. the entertainment is great, and you're going to have a great time, and you're yeah. going to do things. It's like Vegas; you you just don't talk about it when you get home. You <laughs> yeah. had a great time when you were on that Carnival ship, right? What happens? And those the inspiration and the imagination were the ships running out of Long Beach, and they were extremely popular. I saw them all the time from the Queen Mary. I visited them. I did photo galleries of them for various markets that I write for because yeah. I'm. Cruise journalist, as well as this guy running this website uh, selling old ship parts. So, uh, yeah, when COVID struck, all of a sudden the ships were out of business. Uh, Carnival had 100 ships in the Carnival Corporation fold. All the ships of Costa, Carnival, um, Holland America Line, Princess. And they have to pay for the crew. They have to pay for the maintenance. And all of a sudden these ships that were eking out a decent living. They were higher to higher price to operate than some of the newer ships that are almost twice the size, just as expensive to run their engines as they are in this ship that carries another thousand or 1500 mm. people. So they weren't the most efficient ships, but they yeah. were still making a slight profit. So Carnival kept them around and they were popular. Well, those are the first ships to go in mm. this crisis. Uh, the two ships that are there along with the three carnival ships were the Royal Caribbean built ships, the sovereign of the seas and the monarch of the seas. They were magnificent ships of their time. Very, very ahead of their time, architecturally beautiful to look at uh, small cabins though. Again, not enough balconies to sustain themselves in the modern cruise market. Mm -hmm. so Royal Caribbean divested themselves. They had a Spanish speaking cruise line called Pumantour, which was operating in Europe and they just couldn't sustain that. So they 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 pretty much shut down Pullman Tour and sold all of its ships for scrap. So they went to Aliyah in Turkey because of the higher, the supposedly higher standards than there are at Alang. Um, and that's what's happened. And the longer the ships are shut down, the more casualties there will be. There was a mm -hmm. British line called Cruise and Maritime Voyages. They were one of the last people operating classic ships. They went bankrupt. Their ships have all been auctioned off, some for barely scrap value. A few of the ships will go for scrap. A few others will probably sit around for a while and see if mm -hmm. the market comes back and they want secondhand ships in a couple of years. But it's it's been a complete devastation. All of a sudden, everything's viable. The cruise industry is a billion, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, yeah. industry. It's employing people from all around the world. It's a great way to take a vacation. And then boom, it's it's over. Uh, yeah. So that's that's what's going on. And um, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot more, uh, hear a lot more sad stories uh, mm. before this crisis is done. And hopefully- yeah, do, does, do people expect like, a, I guess we're waiting to see what happens with COVID, but a, a rally in the industry? Is there any type of light at the end of the tunnel or like silver lining, like at least we're going to get, I don't know what, is there anything good to come from this, from someone who's kind of in the cruising, you know, mindset? Maybe what will come out of it is people will be more aware of, uh, of cleanliness, 
ships have been very, very clean. And COVID's, you know, COVID's just the latest thing to happen. Ships have had norovirus or noroc-like mm. virus, which is, it's a very unpleasant virus. And it's, you can get it anywhere. Uh, you can get it in hotels. You can get it on planes. You can get it anywhere. You touch something and then all of a sudden you have this horrible, mm. intense thing where you're projectile vomiting and you're a wreck for days. And if you're old uh, or you have a compromised immune system, you can get very sick and, you know, it can be fatal. It's terrible. It's nothing pleasant. Problem with ships is somebody gets norovirus, the symptoms appear a couple days later. So if you're on a plane, you don't know if you got it on the plane, it hits you when you get to your hotel or you get back home on a ship. You're still on that ship. So all of a sudden that ship becomes a place where people start panicking and all of a sudden, you know, you got to shut down the buffet and, you know, yeah. they, they take measures, but they were really good at that and sanitizing, you know, they're always polishing and cleaning and making sure the ships are clean. So overall yeah. it's been very, very clean. I think in the yeah. beginning with um, COVID, they didn't know how airborne, how dangerous the tiny airborne particles are. So mm-hmm. they were really good at scrubbing things down and then they would, put, you know, people in their cabins and not allow them to go out and they would quarantine them. But again, the air circulating into their cabin probably (laughs) those droplets in it. They didn't know that at the time. The cruise industry got a really, really bad rap. Some of it deserved and some of it not so. Uh, But of course, ships became the, I'm never going to step foot on a cruise ship again. Well, people are saying to me, you know, aren't you dying to get back at sea? I was taking 10 cruises a year. I was always going on assignment. I was seeing, you know, mm-hmm. Costa Rica and Tahiti and Europe and all these beautiful places. And, you know, my privilege in life was being able to write about and document these these wonderful places and get paid for it. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's something I worked all my life for. And now people are saying, don't you miss it? And I'm like, not for a second, not for the ships. I wouldn't be so afraid to go on a ship now if the if the population was controlled and people were all wearing masks and doing what they're supposed to do in a health crisis. The problem is getting to the ship. I'm not going to get on an airplane and fly for, you know, yeah. 10 hours to, you know, Frankfurt yeah. Airport on a crowded plane <laughs> yeah. sitting next to the bathroom with the toilet flushing. <laughs> yeah. There's no way I'm going to deal with that until they really get this under control. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. Well, can you tell us? Um, I mentioned Sands of Alang. This is that's the video you put together, and this is probably a few years ago now. But tell us what other places people can find your work and your writings, and some of your uh, some of the things you've done on this. Awesome. Well, thank you for that plug. I really appreciate that. Um, you can find my work and a lot of the stuff I have, and I'm still selling on MidshipCentury.com. Um, and not only do I have the market and the inventory there. I also have a section where I tell the history of each of the ships that I bought things from and I show its life, uh, its many different careers and show what, you know, what happened to the ship in its final days being scrapped. A lot of those pictures are very sad and disturbing for some people who are very close to the ships. It's like watching, looking at something you love being destroyed, but for other people, it's not such a direct association and it's, it's an incredibly fascinating bit of history. So I yeah. highly recommend visiting that site. Um, you can find me uh, anywhere online. If you Google me, Peter Canego, K-N-E-G-O, you'll find numerous articles I've written about ships or people that have written articles about what I do because it is sort of an unusual uh, aspect in, 
<laughs> in my life. Yeah, um, it really is. It's unusual. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and my home is completely rebuilt. You'll see behind me the furniture here is 1950s ocean liner, woodwork uh, cabinetry and a door from an Italian liner. Uh, the, everything oh, in my yeah. house, every door, pretty much every light fixture, paneling on the walls, artworks, it's all from a ship railing in my stair tower. Uh, so I'll get you some of those pictures and, you know, maybe you can. You know. I, I would love to see them. And for, if you guys are still listening, we'll put those at the end of the video, maybe a, a sort of a slideshow. And so please check that out. And I just can't recommend everybody enough. The, this whole, when I watched Sands of a Lang, you know, I don't know how you collected some of that old footage, but obviously I never sailed on any of those ships, but I almost felt a, like a pain and a nostalgia. Like I wish I had in the fifties. Cause you see those people having a great time and you just feel, I, I just felt instantly super left out kind of, and obviously the ships are gone. So it's a, it's really just a, it's a neat and weird and you gotta, you gotta take a closer look. They had a real purpose, purposeful history. Those old ships, uh, they weren't just party boats. They carried yeah. stars and they were the only way you could go to Hawaii or the only way you could yeah. go to Europe. And they had such a sense of purpose about them. I think that the new ships don't necessarily have, and I'm glad you enjoyed the history. And I do try to get old footage. I'm doing a new volume of that series. I intend to have 10 altogether. There'll be nine about a Lang and there'll be one about Alia, uh, about the love boat, um, and the mm. love boat sister ship, the Island princess. Um, and I've interviewed Gavin from the love boat and, um, gone to a lot of the big premieres where the whole cast has been. So I've got a lot of footage that I'll include of, of them and also telling how the love boat changed the way we perceive cruising. It, it wasn't before the love boat. It was only something your rich grandma did. And after the love boat, it became something that everybody wanted to do. Um, so that'll be down the road. Uh, and I hope to get this new volume out, um, in January or maybe February. I'm, I'm still trying to license some old, video or old cinema footage of the ship that I'm doing this project about. And that's been a little complicated. So that's delaying me, but it'll be out pretty soon if you check the website, but Sands Beautiful. Of available. And I've done a series of videos also just cruise ships in general exterior. I it's like an encyclopedia. It'll be like 40, 50 seconds of say the carnival fantasy sailing by and I give its brief history and that's called the world's passenger fleet. So I have one volume of that yeah. at available now, volume nine. The first eight need to be put on DVD. And, you know, again, I, I could work a lifetime just doing this stuff. Uh, but COVID <laughs> gotten me home and I have a lot of free time. So I'm doing yeah. what I wasn't able to do when I was traveling so much. So. Yeah, well, that's great. You're getting caught up. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on our program. And we'll keep an eye out for all of these things and everyone can check the description for links to each of these as well as anything else peter that you have that you'd like to put in there so thanks again and um, everybody listening we'll catch you next time thank you nate it's really been a pleasure great to meet you and thank you for having me